Thank you, Gary, for presiding over our service and uh, sharing your heart with us and your love for Christ Church and love for uh, Irvine Flock. Really uh, encourages all of us to see a shepherd care you and your wife and practically serve all these saints and uh, really lay yourselves down for the sake of Christ. So thank you for your sharing and we thank God for you, Gary uh, and Cindy and how God is using you uh, so mightily in so many lives here in our church. And uh, so good to see the Coyle family with us this morning, Tim and Barbara, Aiden, Owen, Molly, and Deidre. So we were there. Deidre is the only one we haven't met personally. It's met her today, but we were there for the first three, and uh joy to see how you, God has grown your family and uh, continue to uh, be faithful in the ministry of the gospel in Ireland. Um, Tim and I go way back. Some of you weren't even born when Tim and I first met. 1988-89, we met, and we were both young believers. We were trying to, trying to be youth pastors. We were kind of posing as youth pastors, and nobody caught on to us. And uh, we were, I don't know what we were teaching, I don't know what we were doing, but the kids were excited. <laughs> and that's all that mattered. I mean, we had, I think, Everything wrong except with the gospel, right? Maybe. I mean, we're like the opposite of what we were in 89. But, Matt, we're excited. We had uh, zeal and passion and um, and so many great times of serving together. And uh, for a few years, we did our youth ministry together, and we lost touch. And then in 96, 97, I don't know. When it's so long, you can't remember dates. <laughs> it's like a history class. Someone in the 90s, I was in seminary and I ran into Tim and he was uh, graduating at the Master's Seminary and we shared how God brought us all the way around in terms of our theology and united us again. So we've been uh, dear friends and co-laborers in the gospel and we truly thank God for them. They're doing a wonderful work in Ireland and with a church uh, there and um, uh Difficult field. Uh, Europe is a difficult place for the gospel, but so challenged and encouraged to see uh, their faithfulness and uh, how, uh, in spite of the hardness of people's hearts, gospel is working and moving and saving souls and sanctifying those who are in Christ. Well, if you haven't heard, um, the leaders, the pastors, elders, and the leaders, some of the leaders of our church just came back from uh, three nights and four days in Chicago, Illinois, for, we attended the Gospel Coalition uh, bi, biannual, biannual conference. Uh, it was Keller and Driscoll and Carson and Piper, Mahaney and Harris. It was the all-stars of Reformed theology, and it was just a, a tremendous time. It was just a heart-enlarging time, uh, learning from these men. Um, the first session was Keller on Acts 19 on uh, discerning, exposing, and destroying idols. And uh, I'll be quoting from it a little bit later on, but the sermon's online for free, so I encourage you to... Uh, well, it's on Facebook, so all these things go on Facebook instead of our church website or, or Zynga. So either you guys ought to get on Facebook and uh, be friends with Joe Jung, or... <laughs> Or we will post the links to our church website as well. But do both. And uh, that sermon is well worth uh, your time and your attention. A great, great time together in the Word. And 
you know, added bonus was um, the, the cuisine in Chicago. I, I never knew. I'm 39 years old. I heard, but not experienced the, the sweetness of Chicago. I mean, we we landed at 9 p.m. and we went made a beeline to uh, Giordano's Pizzeria, famous for their deep dish pizza. It's not deep dish pizza. It's a pizza pie. I mean, it's literally, um, like we each had one slice and we were done. I think Jason had two. <laughs> Jason, you, you respect for, for that brother. Um, <laughs> we're telling that there's a homeless person in his stomach. <laughs> the Korean joke was way back. Like several generations, but. And we had uh, Italian beef. Wow, that was just magic. We had, um, uh, you know, sausages, uh, hot dogs. That will last me for the rest of this year. I'm, I'm good now. I'm, I'm no, so it was a really great time. And then I came back, and then um, Thea and Jamie, they were telling me about my sermon that I gave you a while ago about durian and how, remember Isaiah said, I have a... Dirty tongue, you know, I don't know what he said. What did he, what did he say? My, my tongue is filthy. And so he, what happened, when he saw the holiness of God, he tasted his sin. And I kind of used the illustration of Durian, how Zimmerman couldn't eat that. He, he spat it out. He loves bizarre foods, but it smelled like uh, sweaty socks. that been fermenting for a week. So he actually, like, couldn't eat it. And I was using that as illustration of how gross our sins are. And Jamie was like, I love durian. What are you talking about? That's a delicacy. It's like I grew up on it. And so you got to try it. So I'm like, you know, want to be missionary at heart. So, okay, we'll do this. So the providence of God, I came back from that cuisine feast in Chicago on Thursday. And then our dinner was Friday night. And I had my first experience of durian. And, um, I mean, it's really bad. <laughs> no. I'm, you know, I want to be a gracious, like, guest, and I mean, like, it's the most horrible thing I've ever heard in my life. I am not even exaggerating here. Like, the smell, it's like, it's They don't allow it in hotels in Asia. You can't take it on public transportation in Asia because it's a stench is so strong. And, uh, I mean, like, you know, we had, I had a bite, and it's like, um, like a week old like diaper that you're putting into your mouth. And the I mean the worst part is that it's a gift that keeps on giving. I mean ask my wife that night to like midnight I don't want to be gross but I mean I was like burping it up. And I was like tasting durian like durian. like oh man, it was like so what I'm going to do is buy some for the men's retreat. <laughs> and it will motivate our guys during our game time. The losers have to eat this fruit. <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to do that. I'm gonna... And she was talking about durian, like shakes and ice cream and like mess. <laughs> and then I was asking Chris Stang. Chris Stang was saying like, oh, they, it's a delicacy in Vietnam. And I was like, well, what, how do you call it in Vietnamese? And she said, he said, so ring. <laughs> I was like, what? That's my wife's name. 
Sorin? Sorin? Where did your parents get your name from? That's a very uncommon name. They got it from Durian, right? So I love Sorin. I can't handle Sorin, right? I gotta get that right. So. So it took me a few days. I'm going to go on a diet and now lose a couple of pounds there. So here we are today and we're talking. <laughs> so we're talking over Durian and uh, Christmas. We're talking about the gospel and, uh, you know, I try to get my mind off of this. We're talking. And Chris asked a real good question. Uh, he wants, he's interested. He wants to grow and learn more. What are some resources? What are some good books that you would recommend? to learn and grow the uh, gospel for salvation and for the Christian life. So I brought the top six books that have helped me understand the gospel. Top six because that's all I've read on the gospel <laughs> for our study together. So first book I recommend is for all the sisters out there is Because He Loves Me by Elise Fitzpatrick. Great book. Excellent book. So much so, I'll recommend it for the guys as well. Just take off the cover... And you can read it, and it's not a problem, right? So if you preach the misery tree, just pick out the cover, and nobody will know the difference. But an excellent book, Because He Loves Me, by Lee Fitzpatrick. Um, second book is Holiness by Grace. By He was a speaker at the Gospel Coalition, Brian Chapel or Chappelle. We just couldn't figure out how to pronounce his last name. He's the president of Covenant Theological Seminary. Excellent work. Some of my recent sermons were uh, really helped by this. Uh, this is like for, for like guys who kind of slow in the uptake like me. Uh, this is kind of a simplified book for the gospel, for Christians. Uh, good news for those trying harder. It's Tim Keller Light. So it really helped me. Helped me a lot by Alan Crafts. And of course, uh, The Prodigal God by Tim Keller. But I think we want to start a, a lending library. Maybe um, some of our admin team get on it and buy a few of these books. We don't have to all buy them. We could just by the church and read it together. Uh, of course, Jerry Bridges, The Gospel for Real Life. Excellent primer on the gospel. Transforming Grace. Next book I'm going to read is uh, The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And he says, it's discipline singular. So from what I've heard, that's, that book's all about how being strengthened in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And that is our one discipline. And out of that flows our obedience uh, to the glory of God in Christ. The book that I might start, if I were to start all over again, is this book. Just came out, and it's The Bookends of the Christian Life by Jerry Bridges. It's kind of expensive, fourteen ninety nine for this. All right, so maybe we'll get in our library, but excellent, excellent book. Here's Jerry Bridges. The first book he writes is Pursuit of Holiness. And you read that book, and it's just about doing whatever it takes to be holy, right? training to do what is right in the sight of God and man. The second book, he writes Practice of Godliness. And then he goes to theology proper, trusting God. And then he understands the gospel in a whole new light. And he writes books like Transforming Grace, The Discipline of Grace, The Gospel for Real Life. And I believe this is the most succinct, clear presentation of what he believes for a Christian who is striving to be holy and godly uh, for Christ and for the world. So very clear, very readable, and it was very helpful to me. I'm sure it be helpful to you as well. The bookends of the Christian life by Jerry Bridges. Well, 
Uh, to begin our time, we're going to study Mark chapter 10 on the rich young ruler. And I'll begin by saying how important grace is for the Christian life. We are saved by grace. We live by grace. I mean, I think Gary's sharing was so apt for the sermon because we do everything by grace, not by works. Our ministries by grace. I am preaching now by the grace of God. All that we are is the product of grace. It is by grace we will be resurrected in our new bodies. It is by grace we will be glorified. And it is by grace we will be with God forever. Singing praises to His glorious name for eternity. It is all by grace. So it is important for us as Christians to understand grace. And to truly and fully understand this, we need to understand these two truths. Two truths that are vital for our understanding of grace. First is double imputation. Double imputation. It, it reveals to us the magnitude, sufficiency, the freedom that has been given to us by the grace of God. That in Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, and in our faith in the gospel, God imputed to us His righteousness in that our sins were forgiven. All our unrighteous deeds, all our wickedness, evil, our transgressions have been wiped clean and we are washed in the blood of the Lamb. But there is a flip side, a, a secondary imputation, where God imputes to us, because of our faith in the gospel, the righteous life that Christ lived. We are credited with all of His limitless righteousness. We are clothed with the garbs of Christ. Therefore, Galatians 2.20, The life I now live by faith, I live in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. So His righteousness to me is how I live by faith. I believe in Christ. And so my walk is, is covered with His righteousness. So when God sees me, when God sees you, those who are in Christ, He sees His Son, Jesus Christ. He sees His Son's perfect life, His perfect righteousness. We are forgiven and we are made righteous. That is double imputation. That is so important. That is so profound. That is something that I, I never fully grasped until recently. That brings the gospel to here and now. If this is just the first imputation, then my Christian life is all about Calvary, or all about my salvation, or all about eternity, when I'll be with Christ. If it's just single imputation, then Christ died for me, forgave me of my, of my sins, and it's my work. From this point on, till I die or Christ comes back, I have to maintain this righteousness. I have to make sure that I'm walking and doing things that are inside of God, so that I'll be righteous in His sight. I, I knew better, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't emphasized in my heart. So functionally, practically, I, I lived with the cross 2,000 years ago, or cross 20 years ago when I got saved. But now emphasizing the balance of the secondary imputation, there is great freedom in the Christian life. Because life I now live, I don't live by works. I don't live by my performance. My Christian life is not based, gazed on my excellence or my failures. It's all dependent on the cross. And in the cross there's limitless righteousness credited to me. Therefore, I have this freedom 
to love God with all my heart, to confess my sins with honesty, with God, and with my wife, and with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and I'm not riddled with guilt and, and burdened with shame. I confess. I, we, we live repentant lives. It's not a one-time act. We're repentant moment by moment every day, but repentant based on the finished work of Christ. Not repentant in, t- in terms of what I have to do now because I have failed so horribly before the sight of God. That's the first truth of, of grace that, that is so important for us to understand what biblical grace is all about. Second is the extent of our lostness pre-grace. The extent of our lostness, the extent of our sin, the extent of our debt. Keller was so helpful with this. Um, he gave the illustration where, uh, let's say, um, you're babysitting at my house and I was away and I came back and you told me, well, a bill came and you took care of it. You paid my bill for me. And how I respond is all dependent on the bill that was paid for on my behalf by you. Whether I just say, you know, great, thanks. I appreciate that. Or I get on my knees and I kiss your feet. It's all dependent on the amount of debt. If it was like a letter that came and it wasn't, didn't have a stamp, so it's 42 cents. So you paid that 42 cents for me. I'd be like, barely thanks, right? <laughs> you know, why do you mention it? 42 cents. What's 42 cents between believers? <laughs> she didn't even just, come on, right? But if it was a debt like I had owed like all this money to the IRS or my mortgage came, right? And you made, you paid not just the monthly bill but the whole mortgage or there was a lawsuit against me and my family would be ruined, devastated because of this and you paid that bill on my behalf, I would get on my knees and kiss your feet, right? <laughs> Especially if it was like a mortgage, I would kiss your feet. I would. If you want to, talk to me later and we can arrange that to be done. My response is dependent on the the, the size of the debt. And um, I think uh, we don't fully understand or appreciate uh, the sinfulness of our sins. Uh, How great a debt we had uh, apart from Christ. And what clouds our vision of our depravity, of our wickedness of our sinfulness i think what clouds it sometimes is our our good works our righteousness uh, our morality um someone was asked you know what how bad were you before you became a christian i knew you you weren't that bad you know you weren't partying you weren't living in sin you weren't living for yourself you were a pretty good person how bad were you because i was really bad and uh, my response was that the answer is, yeah, I was so bad because I believed I was more righteous than you. I judged you. I looked down on you. I looked down on all your friends. I thought I was morally superior because I went to church. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke. I got good grades. I went to a good school. You're wasting your life. So I despised you. I looked down on you. In my pride, um, I, I judged you so much. That's how evil I was. But I think that we are often deceived and, and, and our hearts, our minds are muddled, uh, confused because we don't see the depth of our depravity that 
even our righteous deeds apart from Christ, are tainted by the evil of our hearts. Uh, I mean, Romans 2 talks about that, right? What good is it? Talks to the Jews with the law. You have the law, but do you truly practice it? Romans 7, he talks about how the law came to him, and he had the desire, but not, could not carry it out. Philippians 3, Paul talked about how he considers all things nothing and all things rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ our Lord. John Calvin wrote, To man we may assign only this, that he pollutes and contaminates by his impurity those very things that are good. For nothing proceeds from a man, however perfect he may be, that is not defiled by some spot. Let the Lord then call to judgment the best of human works. He will indeed recognize in them man's dishonor and shame. Brian Chapel, in his book, Holiness by Grace, said the great disproportion between our good works and God's holiness never goes away in this life. Our works will never earn God's affection as just they will never merit His pardon. Our best deeds will never be sufficiently free of the contamination of human motive and imperfection that they are acceptable to God on their own merit. The authors of the Westminster Confession wrote this, As they are wrought by us, good works, they are defiled. They are mixed with so much weaknesses and imperfections that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. Believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in Him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable or unreproachable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. The last paragraph is that all that we do is accepted by God because of Christ, not because our works are good, not because our works are untainted by our, our sin. No, they are, but because we do them by faith in Christ, God accepts them. And that's exactly what Jerry was saying. Jerry was saying, I am weak, I'm inadequate, I am a sinner, and yet God is blessing our work in, in spite of me at Irvine Flock, not because of my, my teaching or my shepherding is without, not tainted by my sins. No, because of the cross of Christ. So apart from Christ, all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. And so, therefore, we see how, um, how righteousness deceives us, deceives people to see their own evil. And that's why, in the Gospels, we find faith in the most amazing places. We discover true, sincere, passionate, God-honoring love for Christ in the places where you least expect it, and the hearts where you expect true love for God. It's not there. So you would expect the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, those who are, who are into the law of God to love Christ, trust Christ, pursue Christ. But instead, they were provoked to anger by Christ and His message and His righteousness. And yet the people where you would not expect faith, you saw these tax collectors, prostitutes, these drunkards, these scums of the earth, these social outcasts. We find these lepers, we find true faith. Like last week, these lepers, they had true faith. Marks of sincere trusting in Christ. Where they had desperation. Jesus, have mercy on us. 
They, the, 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 the one leper, he put Christ as a priority over against uh, the Old Testament law, over against all human relationships. He went to Christ before he went to see his family. We saw exuberant praise. As, as low as his desperation was, as high was his praise. He responded, coming back, shouting songs of praise to Christ. And we saw his humility. He fell at Christ's feet, worshipped him. And we, we saw the evidence of faith where he was filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. He was uh, content. He was so grateful to Christ. We see that in the most unexpected places. Begin our time with asking you, do you see these qualities in your life? Right. So we're not talking about works. We're not talking about deeds. We're not talking about ministry. We're talking about heart condition. We're talking about our souls, the inner man. That's where God is most interested in. That is God's true concern. Our hearts. So which category will he fit in? Do we have this desperation for Christ as, as a deer pants for streams of water? So my soul pants after you, O God, the living God, Psalm 42. Or is your dependence on something else? Is our lack of dependence on Christ? Is our lack of passion and zeal for God day by day where you desire Him more than your daily bread? Is there a priority of Christ where everything is secondary to worshiping Christ, to going to Christ? All relationships, husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, job, pursued hobbies, all by far a, a low second compared to the priority of loving Christ. Or is your heart consumed by something else? Is your soul enslaved, ensnared? Something else more beautiful to, to, to you than Christ. How do you know? You know about it. You talk about it more than Christ. You think about it more than Christ. You think about it the first thing in the morning. You think about it last thing at night. That is your running conversation with one another. That is your internal monologue that goes on. We all talk to ourselves. Right? But 99.9% of us, you know, we don't want to look weird. So we don't, uh, you know, make it audible. We do it internally. But the internal monologue, is, this, is it about Christ and His Word and His truth? Or is it about something in the world? Is there a exuberant praise? Because you're so desperate. And because the grace given to us in Christ. Your heart response is exuberant praise. It's not a duty. It's not work. You're not here, oh, i got to sing. This is my job. This is what I'm called to do. You know, i got to do this. Right? Or is it just... Really, out of the overflow of your heart, your 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 God open your mouth and you're filled with songs to God. And then, is there true gratitude, thanksgiving, contentment in your heart, or is there a restlessness? Is there a discontentment? Is there holding grudges, unwillingness, or inability to forgive others? It's amazing how deceived we can become by looking at our knowledge, our achievements, you know, our external beauty maybe, 
or what people say of us or what we have done or just all we're just where God doesn't care. This leper had these marks of true faith. And then this guy that we'll study this morning, this rich young ruler, right, who was extremely obedient, we don't see these marks in his life. Turn with me to uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 17. There's a parallel passage in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 19. That's helpful as well. Our passage for today is Mark 10, 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, Christ, and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is seeking eternal life. He doesn't want more wealth, more prestige, more power or comfort. He's not, he doesn't need anything else. He doesn't, he's not looking for a miracle. He's not looking for a healing. He wants eternal life. So he was rich and in a powerful position. He longed for something far greater. Spiritual life. Eternal life. Righteousness with God. It was something that his money could not provide. His power could not achieve. Peace, joy, and hope. That was his question. He, and, and he was better than Nicodemus in John 3 who came to Christ at night because he feared the Pharisees. He wasn't like the leaders in John 12:42, who secretly believed in the fact that Jesus was the Son of God and yet they would not confess it for fear to be put out of the synagogue. He came to our Lord publicly without shame or fear and he freely acknowledged his need for eternal life before Jesus And there seems to be, externally, a sense of desperation in this young man. Mark says that he came to running to Christ and even got on his knees, indicating some kind of desperation, humility on this man's part. And he asked the right question. He asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we, we, he's asking about eternal life and his mindset is works. What must I do so that I might gain eternal life? Our Lord responded to him, Why do you call me good? There is no one who is good except God alone. It's an astonishing uh, response by the Lord. No one is good except God alone. One author wrote, There is none like him, God. No, no one is comparable. No one measures up. Between his perfection and our performance, there is a gulf that is unbridgeable by human means. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so far as God's goodness, righteousness, and holiness above our own. Jesus immediately exalts, elevates God before this young man. You calling me good? God alone is good. God and his laws are all are holy. It says in verse 19, you know the commandments. And he begins with the horizontal commandments and we'll find out later why. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Right. Our Lord was right in saying this. Right. 
If you want eternal life, obey these commandments. You obey, then you'll have eternal life. When I uh, go out witnessing, and a question that often comes up when I meet, meet uh, unbelievers is, uh, what happens to the innocent African native who's never heard the gospel? Right? He's ha- never had the opportunity to believe in Christ and be saved. What happens to him? And my response is, he goes to heaven. Right? He gets eternal life. He goes straight to heaven, the throne room of God, and he's with God forever. Romans 2, 6 through 7. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, immortality, he will give eternal life. But, you guys are a little nervous now. But the Bible says there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who seeks God. No one who does good. This innocent African native does not exist. The innocent, righteous, sinless South America does not exist. And I know for sure, innocent South Korean does not exist. <laughs> I can testify personally that it's like the Easter Bunny. It's like the Santa Claus. He does not exist. Right. That's why verse 8 of Romans 2 says, But for those who are self-seeking, do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be fury and wrath, and that's Paul's argument, that everybody disobeys God. Everybody is unrighteous. They obey their unrighteousness, and the only thing awaiting them is God's wrath and God's fury. So our Lord is calling this man out. God is good. He's not human. He is holy and righteous, high above all creation. His laws are perfect. Obey them and you will have eternal life. And his response, verse 20, is, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. He is saying, Yep, you found the one righteous man in Israel in all the world. Right? Now, I would, I would think if you just had that cell phones back then, he would say, Well, let me call your mom right now and I'll talk to her. What's your home phone number? Let me talk to your parents and see if it's true. I, I mean, talk about, one of my favorite quotes is um, J.C. Ryle, there are two rare things in the world, an old man content and a young man who is humble. Matthew points out this is a young rich ruler, young rich ruler. And so, you know, I understand, you know, I'm 39, maybe 40 this year, so I'm not a young man almost anymore. I still got six months of young, young manness left in me, but I'm going to be a man <laughs> real soon. But I look back on my pride. I mean, my wife and I are dating. We once had this conversation. Will we ever argue? Will we ever get in a fight? And we said, no, we would never. Because <laughs> I love you so much. And you love me so much. We're both Christians. We love God's word. Oh, that's absurd. <laughs> we look back and we talk about it. We laugh. I mean, we have a hearty laugh. Like, how blind were we? Jesus, how blind were you to think that you could never, like, sin against your wife and upset her or get angry? You know, crazy. But, you know, I was young. And this ruler is young and rich. And so he responds, I've kept all these since I was a boy. 
Jesus, looking at him, verse 21, loved him and said to him, well, you lack one thing. So he's saying, uh, okay, you obey all the commands in Exodus 20. Okay, let's start with the first one to see if you obeyed that. You shall have no other gods above me, before me. And he fails at the first commandment. What are you talking about, commandment 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10? All these I've kept. Let's go down the list. First one, you got it wrong, right? First one, you failed. And he calls him out. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. This young man says he kept all the laws except he broke the first law. Martin Luther said in his larger catechism, all breaking of the law is breaking the first commandment. If you lie, it's because you worship yourself. Your reputation is more important than God, so you lie. If you you lust, you desire sex more than God, you've broken the first commandment. Everything you do, every commandment you break, when you break that commandment, the first commandment you break is the most important commandment. You should have no other idols. You should not worship, trust, obey, love, depend on anything else than God himself. God himself. This is, uh, this is profound because uh, it shows the, the extent of our lostness, and the depth of our depravity or our sinfulness, and how the law, without it, we don't understand how twisted we are, how we just destroy everything because of our, our twisted hearts. Um, the law was given to us, not that we would obey them, but the law was given to us that it might expose how wretched we are. But we are so blind, we refuse to see it. And we deny what is patently clear. Uh, Paul talked about this in Romans 7.7. 7. Uh, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. You know, Paul is not saying, oh, I had no idea coveting was sin. I didn't know that was part of the Ten Commandments. He knew that from his earliest memory. But until he committed himself to obey this commandment, he never knew how covetous he was. Before it was just, okay, do not covet. Yeah, okay. I can can do that. But once he said, I'm going to obey not coveting, then he knew how Envious, how jealous, how discontent, how ungrateful, what a covetous man he was. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And that's what happens to us when we strive to obey God's word. Um, You know, I read this uh, blog this week, uh, somewhat lengthy. But it's just so good. Um, it's about a, a young boy who was born this past year, this year, January 15th of this year, in New Mexico, to a 15-year-old girl, uh, to an attending physician who was a member of a church. And so the birth mom, 15 years old, immediately decided to put the baby up, Matthew, up for adoption. 
A couple in the church, Desert Springs Church, decided they would adopt this baby right away. After 24 hours, they find, found out that Matthew had a rare condition known as hydranencephaly, a brain disorder where the brain fails to develop correctly. The front part of the brain is fluid instead of functioning tissue, giving Matthew roughly 4 to 12 months to live. The condition was terminal. This place, the couple who had agreed to adopt this boy in a difficult situation, they go to the hard road of the cross, knowing the gut-wrenching pain that would soon ensue from having to watch this child die, or should they turn him back over to the state? They chose to adopt this little boy. They brought him to their home and loved him as their own. This section, I'm just going to read because it's so powerful. Mom writing, Matthew doesn't respond positively to all the love and care we shower on him. Despite the fact that I knew in my head he wouldn't, I still want him to smile back at me. Instead of smiling, he either stares at me blankly or screams in response to my best efforts to communicate with him. The discouragement I feel at his failure to thrive only evidences the selfishness of my endeavors. Before Matthew, I was tempted to believe I loved my children with at least an inkling of selflessness. I now know that I expect at least some return from my investment. At the very least, I would like a two-month smile and a three-month squeal of delight in response to the long nights and endless feedings. I am humbled further to think of the earthly reward I am tempted to expect from my older children. Each day with Matthew, it looks more and more like all of our reward is just being deposited in heaven. Frankly, I am not all that happy about the choice of accounts. I may have previously, previously thought I wanted to deposit all my treasures in heaven. I now know I am more of a 50-50 girl or a 75-25 kind of girl. I would like some treasure in heaven, but most of it right now here. It may be this very realization of further indwelling sin that God seeks to remedy in part through our love of Matthew. I once thought we were called to care for orphans and widows in their distress because by caring for them, we would see buckets of fruit in our own lives. I now believe we are called to selfless acts because in our attempt to selflessness, our selfishness is exposed. I am utterly incapable of selfless love apart from Christ at work in me. So exposed and helpless in the wake of selfishness, we have no choice but to rest completely in Christ for salvation. By faith alone we are saved. Through our attempts at good works, we become all the more aware of our need for complete salvation. Praise God that His grace and love covers us completely and instills in us the hope of heaven. It is sin to seek self above the good that God has will for our lives. Sin separates us from the love that Christ has for us. It is this very separation, the separation that death embodies, that Christ died to overcome. Death stinks. We all hate it, but God more than hated death. He did something about it. Jesus came to overcome death once and for all at the cross. Our hope isn't in life now. Our hope, like it or not, is in heaven. Our hope is not in miracle cures. Our hope is not in a sound doctrine of suffering. Our hope is in a sound doctrine of suffering that begins and ends in the cross. Matthew passed away this past week. Um, 
Their funeral was actually yesterday, April 25th. I mean, so profound what she discovered. Quote it again. I now believe we are called to selfless acts because in our attempt to selflessness, our selfishness is exposed. And that's, um, people say, "What what a wonderful family. Wow. They're the most sacrificing couple, the most humble, God-loving couple to adopt a child like this. And as she strives to do this, she finds selfishness in her heart. In a small way, I understand. Like with reading this, was reminded reminded certain hour of Ethan. How we try to be selfless, and when the state wanted to take him away, man, the depth of my sinfulness, of my selfishness. We discover that when we get married. Right? And you never thought you were a selfish person until you try to be selfless. And you can't, like, leave. You can't, like, go away. This person comes home with you. This person wakes up with you. It's like 24-7. And, like, wow, you realize that's what the law is given, purpose of the law given to us, to expose how lost, how twisted, how wicked we are, and yet this man, young man, was oblivious, and Christ exposed his idol. So for the first time, he experienced, when he, when he saw the first commandment, you should have no other gods, you should not worship anything more than me, he, he felt, experienced the power of this idol of money, of material possessions, and, you know, all idols, right? It's like a, a, a grizzly bear or a fierce tiger. You feed it, you nourish it, you nurture it. And one day it'll turn on you and kill you, ensnare you and destroy you. All idols do that, this idol. At this moment, where he had this great opportunity to be a disciple of Christ and be with Christ, to know him and to love him and follow him, turned on him, bound him, pummeled him, and he, he was helpless. That's why, look at verse 22. Disheartened, he went away sorrowful. He didn't go away brash and arrogant, you know, walking with a swagger. I don't need that. I have money. I'm set for life. He went away sorrowful. Because, like Paul in Romans 7, he had the desire, but he couldn't carry it out because of his flesh. He's an unbeliever here in Mark 10. He wanted, by common grace, to follow Christ. But he was filled with sorrow because he couldn't because of his idol. He, had, he went away sorrowful. Money had enslaved his heart. Right, it would be, he'd have been a blessed man if he was poor. Oh, I, I'm homeless. I've got nothing. Right? My clothes on my back. I'll follow you. Wow, what joy. I bet he cursed his possessions. He, he railed at all these so-called successes and blessings in his life for what they had done to him. Soren Kierkegaard said, sin is building your identity on anything besides God. Besides God. Well, a couple questions for you. Um, you know, consider what... what well, what's causing you to turn from Christ? 
What are you sorrowful about? Man, you know, in the human perspective, it's a blessing. Right? I know people in this world would like what I have and covet what I have. But in my relationship with God, it's a curse. Right? I hate it. I don't want it. What is uh, turning your heart away from knowing Christ and following Him? What are some things that if you lost it, it would just crush you? It would devastate you? It would just uh, cause you to come apart of the seams, whether it's uh, maybe your husband or wife. Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your house or your job. Or, or some other thing in the world where your constant prayer is God. You, you can touch everything, but you can't touch this. You, right, you gotta let me keep this. Right. And I, what is your greatest fear in life? What is your nightmare? Right. Write down your nightmare scenario, and you'll find. Um, some clues as to your idol that is in in your heart. Three closing thoughts in light of uh, Mark 10. I was uh, shocked this week at verse 21. When this young man said, I have done all these things since I was a boy, I think all of us would just laugh at his face or be angry or upset. You will maybe become violent. How dare you slap this boy? Look at Jesus looking at him. Loved him. Loved him. We find uh, our Lord's uh, love for us, love for him while he was still in sin. God loved him while he was a legalist, and God loved us while we were still in sin. That's amazing love. My human response is, why is love there? Mark, you shouldn't have put that there. Because it looks like our Lord is encouraging like religion. You should say, Jesus was angry with him. Jesus despised him. No, Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us, Jesus had compassion on him. Just like he had compassion on the, on the, on the uh, lepers, he had compassion on the religious. Jesus loved him. That is just so wonderful. That is like, that is so beautiful. I was talking to a father this week and he was saying how James, like, I'm seeing my own legalism. I'm seeing how I'm, a, I'm all about performance and my family culture is all about performance and my children know it that we value performance in our family. So I'm learning to tell my children that I love them. So he's saying that to his kids. I, I, lo- I love you. Even if you fail, even if you mess up, I still love you. But he said, but James, I don't believe it in my heart. I'm saying the right thing, but I'm legalistic about it. In my heart, I still value Right. I just want them to obey. I don't care as much about their hearts, their souls, 
their motivations. In my heart, I don't believe what I'm saying. I didn't have the opportunity to tell him, but I would tell him, if I had the opportunity, I would tell him that God still loves you even though you don't believe what you're saying. Even though you're a legalist at heart. Like, God still loves you. First John 4, 7 through 12, let us love one another. Love is of God. And this love of God was made manifest that Christ, that God sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us. And verse 11, Beloved, since, it's not if, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. I would tell him, brother, consider how God loved you. God didn't love you because you overcame your legalism or you overcame your sinfulness. No, God loved you because God is love. God had compassion. God accepted you undeservedly. And that destroys guilt. That destroys shame. You understand what love is. And it empowers you to turn to others and love them unconditionally. Love them based on not of like performance, by success, failure, merit, demerit. Love them just as God has loved us. Secondly, understand how idols lead us away from Christ. It's the sin behind the sin. Whatever we cherish more than God, Functionally, not theologically, not it's not an exam. Practically in your life, functionally, whatever you run to, times of stress or difficulty or suffering, times of pressure, what comforts you and gives you hope, that is your idol. That is what you worship. That is what you're devoted to. That is what you get that angers you when it's taken away. Right? Maybe it's your time, and somebody takes it and you get angry, right? Maybe it's your uh, relationships and that is threatened and you get angry. Maybe it's money and the stock market plunges and you're just fretting, you're just fuming with anger. Whatever you place your trust in, that's your idol and uh, it might work for you, it might still work for you, but know that it's going to turn on you. It's going to fail you. It seeks to destroy your faith. It seeks to separate you from God. Its, it's sole desire is to shipwreck your faith and mine and know that this idol doesn't love you, doesn't care for you, and has never died for you. It has no power. The power is because our hearts are twisted. It's just a created thing. It's like these pagan idols, right, made out of glass or made out of wood, nothing. These idols, like money, sex, romance, like food, home, career, has no power. But it has power over us because of our, our sinfulness. And thirdly, I uh, know that uh, that's why Jesus came. Uh, Jesus came uh, because he is more par- much more, much, much, much more powerful than any idol in this world. 
Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were exceedingly astonished. They were just blown away. That who can be saved? We're all lost because we're all idolaters. No one loves God with all their heart, soul, and mind. It's impossible. You looked at them and said, verse 27, Look, man, it is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. I mean, I look at my life, and you know, this guy turned away from Christ because he had great wealth. I turned away from God for so much less. I am such a worse sinner than this guy. I, I turned away from Christ because of stupid things. This guy's better. At least he was rich. Right? At least he had something. Like, come on. What, what held us back? What is holding us back? I mean, we can't judge this guy. Right? Our idols. Unless you're, you're secretly wealthy. Okay? Our idols are so puny compared to him. So, so we are far more twisted. We are far more lost. We're far more sinful. We're far more enslaved to our idols. And that's why Christ came. Christ came because we're helpless. We couldn't do anything. We're dead in our trespass. So God sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins that He might rescue us. He might save us. He might ransom. He might deliver us and set us free from our idols. That is the, that is the gospel of Christ. That's what gives us hope. Not looking at ourselves and, and defeating, discerning and defeating idols of our hearts. But because Christ has done it by our faith, and Christ continues to do it as we continue to trust in Him, as you continue to believe in Him, this idols, our hearts are idol-making machines, said Calvin. So every day we need to run to Christ and believe in Him that He will destroy our idols and rescue us. It's not a one-time act. It's a moment-by-moment, everyday act of Christ. A mom said recently, I'm a legalist. I am, I don't know what to do. I am so ensnared in this. What do I do? And the answer is, run to Jesus. Go to Christ. He loves you. He'll take care of it. Believe in Him. It's not, wow, I have these idols. You know, like, maybe we do this, right? If I already come over to your house, you're like, Pastor James is coming, right? Remove those books. Those DVD, you know, movies. Take that out. Maybe some of the guys, you know, maybe, right? Posters, put them down, right? Or put a TV and put it, hide it in the closet. Pastor James is coming. And I come and go, wow, what a holy house. You guys are, man, you, you guys are awesome. Praying in prayer closet and verses on the wall and, man, right? That's how, that's our human response. That's how we view Jesus. I gotta like, destroy my idols, get my act straight, make sure I'm presentable, and then I go to Jesus. And if we have idols, we run away from Jesus. Oh, right? We run to Jesus with our idols, with all our sins, with all our failures, with all that's broken and messed up in our hearts, and we run to Him, and we trust Him. 
that he is the conqueror, that he is the almighty one. He is the one who is victorious and he will give us good news. He will not give us counsel or advice or, or rebuke or condemnation. He will give us good declaration. It is all taken care of. It is finished. Trust in me. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in the law. Right? Don't trust in religion. Don't trust in idols or sin. Trust in me. The work has been accomplished. It is finished. A holy, righteous, merciful, kind Father, we we need your uh, mercy. We need your compassion. We need your love this morning. We need your Holy Spirit to open our ears, open our eyes, open our ears, tenderize our hearts, and give us. Uh, Renewed minds to to grasp the the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This first of most important message, this glorious truth that cost your only Son, for we are utterly dependent upon you. Have mercy upon us, Lord. Help us. We believe, but help us in our unbelief. We run to you, Lord. We run to you with all that's wrong within us. We run to you with all our, how we have denied you. We have fallen short of your glory. We have worshipped other things. We have sought after, we have forsaken you and sought after cisterns that not hold water we have committed spiritual adultery before your all seeing eye so Lord we dare not come by works we come by grace we come humbly depending on the gospel depending on your son Jesus Christ knowing that those who call upon your name those who trust in him will never be ashamed will never be turned away so we come to you O God and may you be glorified by by us and your people boasting in the cross alone boasting in what you have done alone in Jesus name we pray Amen